I'm very grateful for a number of things. First of all, thank you so much for praying as a congregation for our ministry. And uh, we really need those prayers as we try to figure out what does God want us to do and how do we serve churches. I also want to thank you for your indulgence. Uh, your session invited me to be here last year, and I had to decline at the last minute, and it was because I was not able to walk. Uh, I, had some, I had some back issues, and it was flaring up, and, and God has blessed. I'm able to dance a little bit, but you don't want to see that. And so I, I appreciate you, one, inviting me again and to be here I thank you for sharing Tom with our denomination. Uh, Tom was elected by the General Assembly to serve on our Committee on Discipleship, and so as I told the Sunday School class, he's, he's one of my bosses. And I, I know that that causes him to have meetings in Atlanta, and I thank you for sharing him in that way. And just thank you also, this church is a church that supports our ministry financially. And without support of churches like yours, we couldn't do what we do. Uh, we're like a, a missionary. We have to raise support among the churches, and you're one of the churches that partners with us. So thank you so much for that, and uh, hopefully it will be a blessing to you as uh, it is a blessing to us. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. As I thought about, okay, what do we want to look at on this weekend before Thanksgiving? And you know what's going to happen in the coming days. We go into that season of plenty and the season of marketing. Uh, probably you already saw the ads. I saw them the other night when I was watching TV on, in the hotel. It's like, okay, Walmart's Black Friday starts today. <laughs> and so... It's, and I heard a report, I think it was on World, the World and Everything In It podcast, about how marketers and retailers are really gearing up because they want this to be a good season. And so what they're going to do is create marketing to really stir in you that you need something more. What you have is just not enough. You need something more. Another thing about the holidays is, and maybe you've heard it, sometimes that can be a hard time for people as they go back to families because relationships with families are not always strong for various reasons. You know, sibling rivalry starts early. It starts with the, stop touching me. You know, you stop touching me. Or mom and dad like me better. And that's, you know, we do all of those different things. And sometimes we're used to seeing in the parable of the prodigal son, we say, okay, there was a little bit of sibling rivalry there. But here in this text, we see it again. Jesus is talking, and he's teaching. He's talking about how don't be afraid when people oppose you and they drag you in front of rulers. God will provide what you need and, and give you the words. And then as he's teaching that, this man speaks up out of the crowd. It's a little brother making a request. And that's where we pick up in Luke 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, 
man? Who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus continued, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Again, let's pray together. Oh Lord, open our eyes that we may see the wonderful things you have for us in your word. By your grace and through the power of your Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. The Lord, show us Jesus as we consider more fully this event in his life, his teaching. For we pray in his name. Amen. The author, John Townsend, wrote a book a number of years ago. It was, entitled the, it, it was titled, The Entitlement Cure. And in chapter one of that book, he told the story of an energetic and extroverted sales manager. The sales manager was in late 30s. And though they were energetic and extroverted sales team, that this manager led had very poor sales figures. And so Peter Townsend, as a consultant, came in and he was talking to this manager. And so he was asking, tell me what's going on. And the manager said, well, my boss just didn't make expectations clear. There wasn't enough staff support or, or data for me to do what's necessary to meet the metrics that they were demanding. Problem is, Peter Townsend had data that he had prepared beforehand that showed that what this manager was saying was actually not true. There was sufficient data, there was sufficient administrative support. And so Townsend asked the person, he said, Look, I enjoy talking to you. You're friendly, you're warm, you work hard. And the person interrupted and he said, That should be enough. That should be enough. I'm warm. I'm caring. It, I, I hold the office together with my relational skills. I deserve to be appreciated for what I do. Even if 
my sales figures lag behind. As Townsend reflected on the event, he said the, the summary of this manager's message was, I am owed special treatment. And really, the person was listening to that internal voice, you deserve more. That's the voice that all of us struggle with. It's a voice of discontent. And why do I say all of us struggle with it? It's because it's part of our fallen nature. You see it in the text. Jesus is dealing with it here. Jesus is teaching the crowd, and here comes this man bringing a family squabble to him. And Jesus refuses to join in the family squabble. And instead... He addresses the deeper issue through giving a warning and telling a parable. He tells us in verse 15, the basic issue involved here is covetousness. And the message that Jesus is presenting is beware the insatiable hunger for more. Which that hunger leads to discontent. And as discontent grows, God more and more is pushed aside in your life and it's replaced by this desire and this pursuit, this sense of wanting to be fulfilled by worldly things. And often what's in the center is yourself. Which as Jesus is teaching here, it's vanity. But at the same time, Jesus is providing an antidote. And it's an antidote we all need to hear as we go into this season where we will be bombarded with messages. You need more. You deserve this. You deserve that. You deserve to be appreciated here. We must embrace the treasure that Jesus offers. And that is a God-centered life. Now, the call to live with God at the center, is necessary. We ask why. Why? Why is it necessary? Well, it's because of our fallen condition, who we are as fallen human beings. Another reason is the ways in which worldliness just seeps into our lives and begins to affect us. But then probably the greatest reason we embrace this God-centered life is the fullness of what Jesus offers. As you think about this text, <clears throat> you, you can ask the question, you know, who's the audience here? Who's Jesus talking to? And at one level, you can read the text in a very surface way and think, well, this text is designed to all the rich people. All the rich people that have so much money that they struggle with materialism. And yeah, you could look at it that way, but that's not, it's a deeper message that Jesus is presenting. Because the text, if you study it, refines our view. Note where Jesus' words were directed, even in the text. Verse 14, he directs his words to the man who asked him to decide this issue. And so, as one author put it, this man in that particular moment felt poor. But then you look, go on, in Jesus, in verse 15, it says, He said to them, speaking of the crowd, the whole group of people that were there, and then you go to verse 22, 
he speaks to the disciples, those who were following him. Could be the twelve, it probably were others in addition to the twelve. So you have those three groups, the man himself, the crowd, and the disciples. What's the message in that? All of us need to hear it. All of us need to hear of the blessing of the fullness, whether we have much or whether we have little. All of us can struggle with this. Let's look a little deeper. A little deeper. How, why should we embrace this God-centered life? Well, it's because of our fallen nature. Verse 13, the man wants his inheritance. Now, I, I agree with the scholars as they look at this. They said probably what's going on here is a manifestation of what's found in Deuteronomy particularly Deuteronomy 21, that in the Jewish culture of that day, the older son gets a double portion of the inheritance. So the older son would get two-thirds of the dad's inheritance, and the younger son would get a third. And so what this man was doing was saying, uh, we don't know exactly what was going on, but he's in fact saying, I want... Rather than 60-40, I want 50-50. We don't know that for sure, but it makes sense. But verse 14, Jesus said, I'm not going to judge that. He refuses to be the judge. But yet in his response, he does render judgment on the man's situation and then broadens the application because Jesus looks at what's going on in his heart. Verse 13, the man is covetousness. Or he's coveting something of his brother. He's struggling with covetousness. He's struggling with being greedy. And remember, what's the Tenth Commandment? You shall not covet. It's something all of us deal with. We can covet material things. We can covet relational connection. We can covet all of these different items that the world presents because we are fallen Verse 21, Jesus talks about him, you're guilty of misplaced priorities. And that's why he tells the parable of the rich fool. So what's the message here? Well, in the parable of the rich fool, it's the man's life is shaped by a self-centered materialism. And we must understand that Today, especially in our Western culture, that's the tug that always pulls at us. And none of us is is exempt. But embracing a God-centered life begins by admitting our natural desire is to have all of life revolve around ourself. It began in the Garden of Eden. You, You remember Genesis 1 through 3? Adam and Eve had this incredible garden that God had given to them. And God said, you can eat of any tree in the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet, Adam and Eve wanted more. And they ate of the tree, which led to the fall. And we today share in that nature. Even those we have 
come to Jesus Christ and become new creatures, we still struggle with the vestiges of the sin nature in our lives. So we too, just as Adam, just as the man in the parable, we struggle with, I deserve more. Now over the next few weeks, you may struggle when you see others who seem to have a sense of entitlement. Sometimes I see it when I'm in the grocery store or in the retail store and this person's, I deserve special treatment for whatever. I deserve this or I have this. We'll see it. And it's easy to be angry at that person. And we can even fall into this, well, I'm above all that. No, we're not. All of us are tempted to think, I deserve more. I'm unhappy. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, talks about how discontent is like a a festering sore in our spiritual life. And all of us struggle with it. And where we look at areas of discontent is where are we murmuring? Where are we complaining? And that's a manifestation of our fallen nature. But let's keep going. Let's look more about how, why should we embrace this God-centered life? Well, it's the symptoms of worldliness that that come into our life. The vanity of the self-centered life that we struggle with. Verse 13, we see the man's attempt to use Jesus as leverage. And so what happens, worldliness, when it comes into our lives and we're in a conflict with somebody, what we tend to do is we're trying to find people who will join with us as allies against the other person. We can do it in just discussions about what's going on in church. We can do it discussions about what's going on in our families. But we're trying to gather these people and use them as leverage to win the day. Testimony of a businessman a number of years ago, I had a a lunch with him. And I met him. He's a very nice man. uh, He owns a, a ministry that talks about stewardship. But he told me a story. He said, Stephen, for so many years, my life, my business revolved around making connections. He said, I had all kinds of celebrity friends all over the United States. He said, one time I was just coming back from a golf, I was playing golf with Jack Nicholas, and I was on the plane, and he said, just sat there on the plane realizing that I have all these connections. I get all these invitations to these places to see different people. But I'm also struggling. I can't go to sleep. He sat there on the plane and said, I'm a bondage to my pride and my pursuit of influence. He said to himself, I hate this. I must decrease. And Christ must increase. 
And then he changed his life to be one that was giving himself to others. See, it's so easy to use connections and use people as leverage. It's a sign of worldliness coming into our lives. As you go on, you you visit verse 15 and verse 23. You see another symptom, and that's a life that's defined by possessions. And possessions could be worldly things, the material things that we have. But really, I like how a commentator put it. A lot of times our possessions are things that we control. We have them and we control them. And that could be material things. It could be our job. It could be awards. It could be social status. It could be causes. In the world of social media, it's how many likes do I get. I remember one time a missionary telling the story of his struggle with this. His life was defined by something he could control. And that's what he had been a missionary in a former Soviet Union country. And so it was a high-risk country. Christians were not allowed to speak freely of their faith, but he was there and he was working with people. He was seeing people come to Christ. And because of what he had done for 20 years on the field, the home office of his missions organization said, we would like you to come back and train a new generation of missionaries. And so he said, okay, I'll come back. And then he said... After he'd been there about four months, he says, I hate being at the bottom. And then he explained what he meant. He said, in the Christian community, we have a pecking order. Missionaries serving in difficult places are at the top. Other missionaries, they're next. Pastors of large churches are next. Pastors of small churches are next. And then it supports that. And he said, I hate being at the bottom. Now, I had just made a transition. When I heard this story, I had just made a transition from being pastor in a church to being a coordinator for a committee. And many people don't even know what our committee was. I hate being at the bottom. It really resonated because so often we have this idea of how do I define my life? And this pastor said, I realized that my identity was wrapped up in my work and what I could do rather than who God declared me to be. And he realized it was a symptom of worldliness shaping him. Another symptom, you see it in verse 17 and 19, a me-centeredness. In the parable, I or my is used 12 times in five verses. I have a problem, got too many goods, I will fix it, I will enjoy it. In verse 19, the enjoyment is the sensual pursuit of pleasure, eat, drink, and be merry. Well, we know that in our today. What is the greatest manifestation of wealth in our culture? I have leisure time. I can eat. I can drink. I can be merry. Now, is there anything wrong with that on the face of it? No, no. God created those things for us to enjoy. But when that becomes the pursuit of our life, that's where it's moving away from a God-centered life. But, and think about what we find in the U.S. 
That's the goal of marketing. You need this new car. You need this particular product. The good life is what you can enjoy of worldly goods. Understand it's there. And fight against its influence. Another symptom we see in verse 22. Anxiety about life. Even the basics of life. It becomes the hooks that the world grabs you. The most tragic symptom, probably the most common, is seen in the parable. And it's a dullness to the reality of God. (coughs) Where the parable, it talks about the man, his land produced plenty. Now, the psalmist talks about how everything we have, all the fruit of the land, is the work of God. But what happens in our life, especially in a life where we're so consumed by scientific progress, which is very good, but what we can do is we can think, well, science means that God is not really necessary. These things just happen. And so the man in the parable says, wow, what luck, I have all of these goods. There's no acknowledgement of God, no giving of thanks, no concept of being accountable for what he's received or a stewardship of what he's received. And that's why God calls him a fool. It has nothing to do with his intellectual ability. Rather, a fool, as we see in Scripture, it's a moral term. It's a life lived with no regard for God. You can be a very intelligent person with many degrees. But if you don't live in the reality of God being present, according to Scripture, you're a fool. All of us struggle with foolishness. See, in the case of this man in the parable, reality was what he could see and touch and manage. And brothers and sisters, we struggle with the same thing. Because of the way that worldliness colors our lives, we must embrace the God-centered life that is offered to us. When we see these tendencies, when we see these symptoms and we see the tendencies, we, we're tempted to downplay it and rationalize it. But a God-centered life is honest, where we say, I know I struggle with this. I need to be released. I need to be forgiven. That's why we have frequent self-examination and, and repentance. We have to ask ourselves, and as we go into this Thanksgiving season... I encourage you to do it on the Wednesday night service. Not only give thanks for what God has given, but be recognized, where do the chains of the world bind me? And know that God says, I deliver you through Jesus Christ. And cry out, Lord, deliver me. Make, enable me to live with you in my mind. See, the irony of this parable and this whole text is the man came to Jesus Wanting Jesus to make his life better. And Jesus wanted the same. But not in the way the man was expecting. 
The man wanted good as is defined by the world. Jesus wanted good as defined by God. Jesus wanted more. And Jesus wants to offer us more. So the fullness of the alternative that God supplies is why we must embrace a God-centered life. Verse 14, Jesus is more than just a problem solver. You remember, if you think back to Luke chapter 9, there's a real shift in Luke's gospel. Because in chapter 9, verse 31, it's uh, 51, I'm sorry, it says, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And so everything that happens after that point in Luke 9, 51, is in the shadow of Jerusalem. What was going to happen in Jerusalem? Jesus was going towards Jerusalem for one purpose. He was there going to sacrifice for sin. And so when this man came up to him, Jesus was heading to Jerusalem. And so here's this man saying, fix this problem in my family. So even as Jesus was dealing with this man, he had in his mind that he was going to Jerusalem to die for all of the pettiness, all of the self-centeredness, all of the disregard for God. Jesus was going to be that sacrifice. As Isaiah says, he was going to be the suffering servant who would give his life, and by his wounds we are healed. And the healing brings contentment. Maybe you remember what the Apostle Paul said. He said, you know, I, I know what it's like to have a lot. I know what it's like to have a little. I know what it's like to be in prison. I know what it's like to be free. You know what the secret is? I've learned to live in lot, much or in want. Because I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. That's what Jesus offers us as we go into this holiday season. Note the grace of the passage. I don't think Jesus is harsh with this young man. He speaks boldly. But in the warning of verse 15 and the rebuke of verse 20... Jesus is actually revealing the heart of God for this man. He warms the man so that the man could change. This is reality about the grace of God. God never, never abandons us to the chains of worldliness. He gives us the warning. And he calls on us to heed the warning. It's interesting, when you study this, what happened at the end of the parable? How did, it, how did it end up? Well, most people assume that the rich man died apart from God, but the text doesn't say that. The text leaves it open. But then also look at the message of verse 20, where it says, the business decision you thought was so great is really worthless. Verse 21, seek the riches of God. And so, we ask the question, what did the rich man do? Well, did he respond to this invitation? But also consider this, what did the man in the crowd do? 
Here again, the text is silent. But that leads to an even more relevant question. Brothers and sisters, what will you do? In what area of your life are you struggling with? You know, I deserve more. And when you find yourself struggling with that murmuring, look for areas of discontent and heed Jesus' warning. The parable calls us to put aside worldliness, the worldliness of laying up things for ourselves, and to seek the treasure of God. Let me close with the story of a, young, a man named David. David, my first memory of David was when I was in seminary, David was one of the custodians that cleaned the bathroom. <clears throat> he was an older man, and he had a very rich voice. And I thought, poor guy. I wonder what happened to him that brought him to this place where he had to clean bathrooms at the seminary and at local churches doing menial jobs. He was pursuing a Master of Divinity, but he's doing it piecemeal, class at a time. And he was working at this church and that church, and his wife worked at the church where I attended. Later, I was surprised to learn that David had a law degree from Vanderbilt University. And for 20 years, David was a lawyer in Nashville working on copyright and contracts with people all over the music business in Nashville. His wife and his three kids all had seminary degrees. And as he was finishing his seminary degree, he became executive director of a mission agency that focused on theological training for those who were in the former Soviet bloc. But through all of this, David continued as a church custodian and using that as an opportunity to meet seminary students, to encourage them and mentor them, even while he was going overseas to teach others who were new Christians and wanting to grow in being able to spread the word in a place that was a closed country. See, David knew well the glories of the world. He had worked in Nashville with all the glamour that was there. He knew what it was to have influence and success. And he also knew the darkness of his own fallen nature. And he had seen so many ways that the worldliness had ensnared him. He embraced the God-centeredness and saw how God worked in him to make him a man of humility and repentance. As one person said, he was a man who wanted each day to be a pursuit of Jesus, who had wiped away the stains and the vanity of his past. David contracted Parkinson's. And as he was struggling with the disease, it hindered his speech and his motion. But he still served. In fact, he moved to Utah because he wanted to work in a mission to help Mormons hear and understand and embrace the gospel. 
And on September 5th, 2013, Jesus called David to glory. And he was able to enjoy in a new way the divine riches that he had tasted on earth. And he heard his Savior say, well done. Former seminary student, he's a good friend of mine, he, I thought he did a great job summarizing very well the impact that David, his ministry and example had on his life. This seminary student said, David taught me what it means to live. Live out my theology. And David challenged my idols of comfort and prestige. Brothers and sisters, that's the essence of a life that is centered on God. Here's the good news. It's a life that Jesus offers to all of us who place our trust in Him. But during this Thanksgiving season, during this holiday season, may Jesus open your eyes and soften your heart to the life He gives to us to the glory of His Father. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank You so much for You never abandon us. You never abandon us to our sin. You gave us Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we, we still like to play in the swamp of worldliness. And though you give us so many gifts and, and you, you call us to enjoy them for your glory. Our chief end is to glorify you and enjoy you forever. Oh Lord, as we go into this season, bless us to do that. Open our eyes, soften our hearts. May we live in the salvation you give us in Jesus Christ, for we pray in his name. Amen.